I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. Today, we're speaking about marijuana, medical or otherwise. And we're speaking with Dr. Albo Morales. Dr. Morales is board certified in addiction psychiatry and addiction medicine. He's a fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine and a member of the teaching faculty at the Florida Atlantic University College of Medicine, where he has introduced addiction into the medical school curriculum, as well as into the curriculum of the psychiatry and internal medicine residents programs. Welcome to the program, Aldo. Thank you. Glad to be here. We know that today many people have said that marijuana is the new opioid of the masses. Certainly, we see that recreational marijuana now is legal in eight countries, 22 states in the U.S., Minnesota soon hopping on board. Medical marijuana, meanwhile, legal in 50 countries. There's a lot of it out there. The pressing question is, are we grossly underestimating the potential risk? And what's our role as physicians in this whole process? It's a great question. Let's take a look at the positives and the potential negatives, because we need to be aware of those negatives, as well as how to harvest the positives. The medical marijuana exists at an intersection between three disciplines, medicine, law, and addiction. And we have to balance those three to understand where marijuana lies and what it does and what it can do. The plant has over 100 active cannabinoids. We know very little about medical marijuana because right now it's a class one drug. We'll talk more about that later. But the class one drug is not readily available for research. It's illegal. There are over 100 active cannabinoids, and we don't know what they're doing. We need evidence-based practice on each one of those cannabinoids to figure out how they're working and what they're doing so we can harvest it for best use. We're no strangers to utilizing medication from the plant world. Polycarpine comes from the polycarpus plant. We extract it and we, we administer it exact amount. We don't tell someone, if you have glaucoma, rub some polycarpus leaf in your eye. We don't do that. The business of smoking an entire plant that's medicinal is a little bit of a shotgun approach. We want to narrow our focus and use that part of the plant that has medicinal properties and administer it properly. There is no medication that we administer by smoke. You said this is a little bit of a shotgun approach. It's kind of a lot of a shotgun approach, I think. And and the challenge is there's so many people with so many opinions. Some of it is data. A lot of it is opinions. How do we work our way through that? We need research. In 1970, the Controlled Substances Act, marijuana was classified as Schedule 1, along with heroin, LSD, and drugs that were considered dangerous and with no medical benefit. Recently, they took cannabidiol out of the Schedule 1 and put it as a Schedule 5 to allow for more research. Cannabidiol is now Schedule 5, whereas marijuana still remains Schedule 1. The research needs to happen for evidence-based practices. And it's legal in so many levels, be it recreational or medical. Is there an implication that this is safe and Is there potential risk that we need to be advising our patients about? The big risk is in our adolescent population. The adult brain can handle marijuana. I have no problem with an adult smoking some weed. The trouble is the adolescent brain is still developing, and we introduce marijuana into that developing brain. We are now paving the way for addiction. For example, we know from the Anthony data in 1994, what is the risk of addiction to marijuana? I'll tell you what it is. The relative risk of addiction after one time in youth, tobacco is 32%. The most highly addictive substance we have is tobacco. Nicotine in the form of tobacco. Nicotine by itself is not that addictive, but the way it's delivered into the, into the brain renders it extremely addictive. It kills 450,000 Americans a year, tobacco-related illness. Yet, it's quite legal. Anyway, the tobacco risk is 32%, heroin 23%, cocaine 17%, alcohol 15%, cannabis 9%. 
However, there was a paper in Lancet that we know 9% of people who use marijuana will become addicted from the Anthony data. The risk increases to 17% in people who start using in their teens. And the risk increases all the way up to 25% or 50% in people who are daily users. Most of those daily users started using early in adolescence. There's where the problem lies, the adolescent population. And separate those who start using it recreationally versus those who have some other comorbid psychiatric. I don't think we have that data. What about the fact that today's marijuana is different than what it was 30, 40 years ago? And it's so strong. You know, some people have said it's instead of like drinking a light beer, it's like drinking a bottle of vodka. How does that affect this addiction statistic? It makes it worse because it's more potent. The potency of seized marijuana in the U.S., increased between 1998 and 2008, 103%. The breeders keep making it stronger and stronger because the stronger the THC content, the more successful your business is going to be. Here's something else that happens. People say, well, I take CBD. You don't know what you're taking because nobody is assaying the CBD and certifying how much CBD is in there. The one that offers CBD with a slightly higher THC content is going to make more business. There's only one pure CBD, and it's Epidiolex. It's an FDA-approved drug for the treatment of a seizure disorder in children. And the drug is approved for that, which Epidiolex is the trade name. Research is needed like yesterday and quickly. I know that in my practice, quite frequently, people tell me that, oh, I smoke, it's safe, I get a little CBD, and so on and so on. And yet I see other problems, some other psychiatric issue where they're not dealing with anxiety, they don't like their marriage, and so they're smoking a little bit. When I bring up the notion of anything negative about it, I often enough am told that I'm being silly, too conservative, too narrow-minded, too old-fashioned, and that I'm really not speaking with adequate street knowledge of what's going on. I find it to be an extraordinarily uphill battle, and sometimes I'm not successful in getting up that hill. As an addictionologist, help us. How do we deal with this? How does society deal with this? Very difficult to deal with this because this is a runaway train. Look, it's organic. It's natural. The perceived risk of marijuana, in the 12th grade population, there was a study on this. The perceived risk of marijuana is less than the perceived risk of cigarette smoke. At that population level, 12th graders, they consider marijuana less harmful than cigarettes. And don't forget, marijuana is natural and it's medical. So what could be wrong with it to a high school kid? Yeah, to Abby's point, I think we know that most people who use this, whether recreationally, once in a while, whatever, most people are not going to really have a problem, but a certain percentage are going to have some really bad problems. And as physicians, we don't like to see that happen to our patients. You know, So again, it goes back to how do we have discussions with them without making it look like we're being judgmental, without pushing them away from our practice because they think we're not on the same page as them. That's a great question. We have to walk up a fine line between pushing our patients away and helping them understand the realities. It is an uphill battle because the drug is, is perceived as a panacea. Speaking of that, let me tell you what, it, what it's approved for in the state of Florida. Cancer, epilepsy, glaucoma, HIV, PTSD, Crohn's disease, multiple sclerosis, chronic muscle spasms, ALS, Parkinson's disease, or medical conditions comparable to the preceding, or the terminal condition diagnosed by a second physician, or chronic malignant pain originating from a qualifying medical condition persisting beyond the usual course of that qualifying condition. There are many indications, I'm putting indications in quotes here, many indications for the drug. 
There are many people walking around with all these kind of conditions. The Florida legislature has approved the drug for, the, for those use. At the same time, it is not endorsed by the AMA. It is not endorsed by the American Psychiatric Association, not endorsed by the American Pediatrics, not endorsed by the American Glaucoma Association, not endorsed by the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, not endorsed by the American Cancer Society, nor by the Society of Addiction Medicine. So these are established by a political process, not yeah. a research process. That's scary. I'll tell you how scary. When I teach my residents, some of them are interested in maybe becoming certified. So I say to them, well, do you know how to get certified in this? If you go to the Florida website, you can take a two-hour course and get two CMEs, and you will be certified by the Board of Medicine in Florida to be able to recommend medical marijuana. You don't, but you can recommend the marijuana. You can't prescribe it. Now, guess who teaches a course? It is taught by two lawyers. This is the highlight of my talk right here, taught by two lawyers. The course is taught by two lawyers. It gets a little better. Let's say you wanted to be a medical director of dispensary or medical marijuana facility. You need a little more training. So you have to take two more hours. And you know who teaches that course? It's the same two lawyers. Here's something else that's eye-opening to me. A newspaper in Tampa made a, an expose, so to speak. Let me find it. While you're looking it up, it is such a amazing contrast to the fact that Suboxone and we are all going to need to take an eight-hour course. And my practice is such that yes. I am not going to prescribe Suboxone. If someone needs Suboxone, I'll send them to somebody like you. Suboxone, because it's very misunderstood, very widely misunderstood by medical personnel and by the lay people. Tampa Bay Times, September 4th, 2019. They made a report that 89 doctors in Florida, 89 doctors, have certified 94,000 medical marijuana patients. It's frightening because huh? it, it, what I, I want to eventually roll over with you is when someone comes to you for treatment for addictions, you know, where is the, the marijuana? What people don't also know is that, and I don't know about other states, but in Florida, we have a database that lists all controlled substances. And before I prescribe a controlled substance, I have to look up, see what else that they're on. It serves its purpose. Marijuana is not yeah. required to be listed in that database. I don't know if someone is taking medical marijuana. That's correct. And to go to your point earlier, you don't know what they're actually swallowing. So there's two levels. That's correct. I have in my office, I have a frame, a prescription from 1933. It's called a prescription form for medicinal liquor. It's for whiskey, two fluid drams, four times a day. And if you have that in your pocket and you get stopped, <laughs> look, I guess I'm okay. 1933, during prohibition. Help us understand, what is yeah. this doing for the addiction problems? I mean, we talk so much about fentanyl. We talk about gateway drugs. We talk about so many things, and it's a mess. It's a total mess. And medical marijuana has just made it more of a mess. For example, we have a, a decree in medicine. We don't give an addictive substance to a patient that has a substance use disorder. For example, we can't tell someone, look, you've had some trouble with alcohol, why don't you try cocaine instead? We can't do that because we're sending them down the wrong path. By the same token, we can't, in good faith, recommend marijuana to a patient with substance use disorder. Unless they were dying. Hospice patients, I wouldn't care. Whatever is needed to relieve the condition. There's been a lot published recently showing the definitive link between marijuana use, schizophrenia, other mental illness. And particularly with the increased potency, with this increased social acceptance in recent times now, in clinical practice, have you seen an uptick in marijuana-related psychiatric problems? 
there's a classic case of a kid who goes away to college and begins smoking weed, and then he presents with a psychotic episode that develops into schizophrenia. If you have that potential and you begin to use marijuana at that age, there is a psychotogenic property that it has. It's also been shown to decrease IQ, by the way. There are various studies that found that when kids begin to use it, IQ is affected. My main concern is keeping the adolescent away from this drug. I'm not too concerned about the adult brain unless they have a substance use disorder. Then it's a no. Certainly as physicians, what role can we play? Education, prevention, but people have talked about prevention for a long time and a lot of the prevention has been classified as bad prevention. Films like uh, Reefer Madness, for instance. This type of approach is probably a negative way to put the message out there. What can we do, particularly with adolescent populations who don't necessarily like to listen to their parents or their elders for advice? That's a great question, Brent, but I am not good for formulating policies. And furthermore, I don't see children. I see only adults. But my concern is for the children. I think if we begin to educate our patients at the grassroots level, one patient at a time, and at some point, our larger organization like the AMA will step up. Medical literacy, it's a concept that's used in schools to teach people about substance abuse. The label once used was teaching social skills, learning to say no, going back to Nancy Reagan. My concern is that they're learning this in school at whatever level of success, but live in a society that's giving them the opposite information or inadequate information or wrong information. I find it terribly frustrating. And I am I, I am so much in agreement with you that the adolescent brain, when I used to do much more work with younger adults and even a lot of people in jail, I always ask them, do you smoke? Uh-huh. When did you start? 12 years old, 13 years old. It was almost, it was so frequent. And I often did not have the time to trace it through if this was the real gateway drug to other situations. And you can't always say it led to crime because it was a thousand variables. But so many of these people that were in a type of trouble started when they were roughly 12-ish. That's correct. You know, something else that's happening with the industry, they have learned from the tobacco industry that if you can get a customer at a young age, you've got a customer for life. Now marketing this to young kids, for example, flavor urban papers and things of that sort, because if you can get somebody hooked early, you've got a customer for life. There's been studies that suggest that in the United States, we have greater drug use than any other country. It kind of poses the question, why in our country, are there so many people who are seeking to alter their consciousness, you know, numbing themselves with opioids or fentanyl or marijuana to anesthetize themselves from what's going on? Why is that happening in our country, do you think? It happens because we're a free society. Other countries, nobody would dare to light up a joint because they will get in major trouble. But here's a free society. So when we look at the connection between marijuana and the mental health issues, which is what we're concerned with here today, that raises the additional question, is it cause or effect? Does the marijuana push people into the direction where they're going to have some people at least more psychiatric issues? Or is it because they have psychiatric issues that they're seeking marijuana to help quell? It's a little of both. If you have genetic predisposition to schizophrenia and you begin to smoke marijuana, that's a bad situation. How do you take that risk, crossing that line at which psychosis becomes present? We don't see this much in the adult population. It's the 20-year-old that's going to present with the first psychotic episode, not your 40 or 50-year-old. If you have a psychotic episode in a 40 or 50-year-old, it's a different... One study I saw recently came out of California, and it said looking at the 65-plus 
generation that if you look over the last 15 years, 15 years ago, they recorded something like 300 emergency room visits related to marijuana. Two years ago, there was over 12,000 visits related to marijuana. Is that because there are real problems going on or is that because people are free to feel more comfortable talking about it? It's because people are using it. We are going to see some negative side effects from it. Now, as the brain gets older, I need to see some studies on how it affects the older brain. It's been studied for agitation and senile dementia. But and we need drug administered in a pure form, not something out of a dispensary that you don't know what is it. You really have no idea what is in there. For example, when you go to the gas station to get to pump your gas, that gas pump is inspected by the state periodically. I went into a dispensary a couple months back and I asked for the package insert that we get pharmaceuticals. And I was told that it's private. That bothered me. I, I want to go to something that's equally troubling. How do we treat a marijuana addiction? Where do we draw the line between use and addiction? With the opioids now, there's a movement towards medication-assisted therapy, suboxone, you know, those types of things. What do we do if someone is using marijuana that they may not think is out of control, but their family thinks is out of control? We don't have a medicine for that. Very difficult. Very difficult to treat the patient with a substance use disorder because the patient is not a willing patient most of the time. They come into treatment when all other possibilities have been exhausted, when they have no choice but to go to treatment. There are specific criteria for substance use disorders. There's 11 criteria. So depending on how many of those criteria an individual possesses, that determines whether they have a substance use disorder or not. If they meet two to three criteria, they have a mild disorder. Four to five criteria, it's a moderate disorder. Six or higher, we call it a severe disorder. So not everybody who smokes weed has a substance use disorder. Not everybody who drinks has an alcohol use disorder. It depends how many of those 11 criteria do you meet. On that note, what advice can we give? You mentioned the adolescent group particularly concerned. They don't realize they have a problem, but there are family members that think, gee, I think my brother or my son or my uncle has a problem. What are some of the things that the lay public should be looking for? When patients begin to exhibit the symptoms of substance use disorder, they're going to start emanating from their family relationships, their responsibilities, because the drug use becomes more paramount. When, when a person with a substance use disorder awakens, the first order of business is how to procure more of the same stuff. Go one track mind. Everything else falls by the wayside. All responsibilities, all family functions, all family relationships, that becomes secondary. The primary focus is, where am I going to get my stuff today? This is my job now. Well, this, this is what I do for a living. I get up in the morning and I have to go find my stuff. And once I find it, I use it. How do we help somebody stop the dysfunctional use of marijuana, recognizing clearly what you said? Someone who has one joint a week and is an adult and otherwise functioning doesn't fall into the same category. Is it an anxiety disorder or social skills that we have to deal with? What modality? Well, you want to develop better coping skills than other than reaching for a, a marijuana a cigarette or whatever they're, they're reaching for. You want to develop other coping skills. Therapists can work with a patient. You can work with a patient for that motivational interview. And for example, you ask your patient, what are the chances that you're going to have a drink this weekend? And the patient will say, oh, it's 50-50, Doc. But motivational interviewing, you're going to say, well, what can you do to make it 80-20? 80-20 that, that you won't drink. Start moving in the right direction. And learning other coping skills other than reaching for that substance. These are the kind of things that patients will learn in either working with a therapist or in rehab. And then we have to look for comorbid psychiatric conditions, either that preceded the use of the drug or that were caused by the use of the drug. It could be a, an affective disorder. It could be an anxiety disorder. It could be a psychotic disorder. 
So we've been using the term SUD, substance use disorder, OUD, opioid use disorder. Now we see this term CUD, cannabis use disorder. Is that something new or has that term been around for a long time? It's been around forever. Well, nobody wants to talk about it because they want to pretend that it's not an addictive substance. As we said earlier, the relative risk of addiction after one-time use of cannabis is 9%. But that risk increases as people are using it more. But yes, you can have a cannabis use disorder mild, moderate, or severe. You have to acknowledge that a problem exists. And that's the first step in licking that problem. Or at least, if not licking it, controlling it. Let's go over the exact 11 criteria that define a substance use disorder. The first five deal with loss of control. Number one, using larger amounts or for a longer period than you originally intend. People start out, I want to do just a little bit. But then they start using more. See, that's one criteria. Number two, persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to control use. Number three, a great deal of time spent in obtaining, using, or recovering from the effects of the stuff. Number four, cravings or a strong desire or urge to use. Number five, recurrent use resulting in failure to fulfill major role obligations. Continued use by recurrent social or personal problems. Stopping, reducing important social, occupational, or recreational activities due to using. Recurrent use in physically hazardous situations. Continuing to use despite the knowledge of physical and psychological problems that the use is causing. And tolerance and withdrawal. Those are 11 criteria that define whether a condition exists, mild, moderate, or severe. That certainly applies to marijuana use uh, specifically. It's not totally a safe substance. Totally. If you look at the DSM-5, cannabis is listed as is speed and alcohol and tobacco, cocaine, etc. There is a cannabis use disorder. Very little information on how best to treat it because we don't have that much data. Some people have used behavioral therapy, different types of medications. What would be your preferred approach? There is no great one particular modality. The preferred approach is embrace abstinence, realize that you cannot do this, that this is something that's deleterious to them. Otherwise, they're going to continue to have bad consequences. So this is someone who's presenting with bad consequences already. Talking about someone who has no consequences, you're speaking into the wind, unless there are negative consequences present, and maybe then you can make an inroad. I find that when I'm challenged with treating someone with a cannabinoid use disorder, what generally works best is an antidepressant, abstinence, obviously. Sometimes they need a mood stabilizer, sometimes not. But the key element here is that every case is individual. I just can't project in advance. The other element that is critical, there has to be somebody in their life who is helping them, who is supporting them, who's holding their hand and keeping them balanced. Really hard to do this alone. Correct. Where do you think we're going with this? Certainly, as you've said and other people have said, Every level of marijuana use is not necessarily dysfunctional. Our concern, however, especially the adolescents, and especially when it's out of control. Marijuana is still a Schedule one drug. It has not been declassified. So we need to begin by declassifying it to allow for research and evidence-based practice. Which cannabinoids are working? So many active cannabinoids in the plant. It's a shotgun approach using the whole plant. I'm delighted that residents are interested in it. They come from a different generation. From when marijuana was not as scary, they must look at it differently. That's a great question. Some that like, understand the negative consequences and the dangers of it. And there are some who see it as a business opportunity. Not the majority, but it is a way to, to earn income. I have been watching people try to get ketamine, and there are a number of websites that offer ketamine, and it's all off-label. Yeah, correct. 
this, this is a great topic. Ketamine is an anesthetic. And ketamine is a offshoot of PCP. Since the patent was lost, the pharmaceutical company was able to patent S-ketamine, the S-isomer. And now the S-isomer, S-isomer is patent. But anybody out there with a medical license can decide, I want to administer racemic ketamine, regular ketamine. We'll do it intravenously, intranasally. Yes. They even do sublingual pellet. This is the wild west. Yeah. This is medicine gone wrong. For those individuals who we would perceive need treatment, but they don't think they need treatment, do we ethically have the right to, to tell them what we think needs to be done? You know, this is the land of freedom, as you mentioned before. Shouldn't people be free to destroy themselves if that's what they want? We can only point them in the right direction, but ultimately the decision is up to the patient. We certainly want to ally ourselves on the side of sobriety. So... We gradually try to move the patient towards that end. It's very difficult to, to steer somebody in the right direction when, when the substance is perceived as innocuous and natural and actually maybe even good for you. I'll tell you what is being looked at now, and some of these can be promising. There's an inhaled preparation for the treatment of migraine headache. It's being looked at for osteoarthritis, chronic back pain. People live with chronic neck and back pain. It's being looked at in anxiety, in ADHD, and PTSD. There's a study comparing THC to CBD and alprazolam. There's studies looking at the differences between the adolescent brain response and the adult brain response. And that is something I really want to see. Agitation of senile dementia, we mentioned earlier. Advanced cancer-associated cachexia is being looked at an essential tremor. And there's a trial, CBD versus risperidone, for recent onset psychosis debilitated by cannabis. With hunger, we need that. Yeah, that's what we need. Dr. Aldo Morales, addiction psychiatrist, thanks for joining us for this very interesting discussion today. Thank you, guys.